I ask the right questions of people to help them identify the best way to do things. Other chief execs will have different strengths. They'll be very creative or they'll be very good at setting up organizations from the start. I'm very much a people person and enabling people to to kind of bring their best self to work and and for us to coalesce behind a vision as a team, you know, and that's my other mantra. We cross the finishing line together. So this is not a scramble. This is a team effort. Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast, formerly known as Leaders of Babies podcast. I'm Farina Hefti. I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus, and I'm your host. I've set up this podcast and our award-winning Leaders Plus Fellowship program because I want to give you access to inspiration and practical support so you can continue to progress your leadership career whilst enjoying your young children in a way that works for you. Today's podcast guest is the fabulous Vicky Fox, CEO of the Supreme Court, and she's also someone who has been a real role model and inspiration to me personally, and she's been a mentor on the Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme, which I think makes her even more fabulous. She is sharing how she made some really tough decisions about career and family life, specifically how she chose to put her career progression on hold for a bit and then reignited it later on to become a CEO. Um, she also talks about becoming a CEO, how do you go about it and about how she did it whilst working flexibly. And then also just practicalities of putting her children first, always. For example, by picking up her phone every day, even during the most important meetings when her children call, even today when her children are obviously a bit older. And we talk a lot about brave decisions, including her brave decision to move from a specialist legal career where she was well respected and everyone thought that she she knew what she was doing to more generous roles, which was new to her at the time and, and where she had to do lots of learning and obviously has done extremely well to now become the CEO of the Supreme Court. I find her approach really refreshing because she generally does things differently from others in a field that doesn't always, isn't known to be the most forward thinking and I really admire her for that. So on that note I should probably also say for those of you who are looking at potentially joining the fellowship program with Leaders Plus the application deadline is on 1st of March and if you are looking to apply there are also hardship fund places available should you need those. We haven't given them out we'll give them out after the application deadline so you've got plenty of time to get your application in you get a supportive community of like-minded peers, world class career acceleration support, and practical help with things like workload management, obviously the senior leader mentor, and just a really supportive, ambitious, brave community of peers who want to not only progress their own careers, but support each other. Yeah, so if you have questions, head over to leadersplus.org.uk or you can also arrange a quick call. So if you just go on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash callback, then you can just arrange a quick call. Sometimes that's slightly easier than lots of emails back and forth. Although you can obviously send my team or I an email. And what most people don't know actually is that we have groups for people whose children are primary school age, as well as obviously those for babies, toddlers and so on. And for this year, we have an international group for the first time. So that's very exciting, I find. And I'm really looking forward to it. 
So yeah, first of March is the deadline. Just wanted to tell you about that. On to today's conversation. A very warm welcome to the podcast, Vicky. I am delighted to have a chance to have a proper chat with you. Why don't we start with you sharing who you are, what you do for work and who's in your family? Thank you, Verena. And I'm really delighted to be on the podcast. It's it's great to be here. So I'm the chief exec of the UK Supreme Court. And the role of the court is to act as a final court of appeal for arguable points of law that are of general or significant public importance. And that's for all civil cases throughout the UK and criminal cases in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. And justices of the court also sit on the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which is the final court of appeal for some Commonwealth countries. And the court's decisions have a direct impact on shaping the law of the UK and beyond. So their cases have an impact on all of us. And their role is to decide those legal questions of public importance. As chief exec, I'm responsible for all the non-judicial functions of the court. That means I'm responsible for the administration and the finance of the court. We have just under 55 staff and I provide an environment that enables the justices to carry out their work in an effective and visible way. So that involves running the organisation. We do a huge amount of outreach and education work. We have many visitors that come to the court and stakeholder engagement with all people affected by our work. And in terms of family, I'm married and we have three sons who are 23, 21 and 17. Wonderful. And a big thank you to you also for having been a mentor on the Leeds Plus Fellowship Programme and a really brilliant one at that. So really grateful that you're also doing stuff in your spare time to drive change for others. So I'm interested, obviously you and I, we have had, we both have three children you very much ahead of me in terms of age. And I'm just interested to hear a bit about how how their needs changed. Um, have, you know, obviously I'm in the midst of still not be changing, primary school and so on. And I'm interested, yeah, what, what the future will look like for people like me. The future looks good. It looks bright. I'd say that. I think you're deeply involved in the physicality of bringing up young children and obviously that changes I we don't have nappies here anymore and haven't had for years and obviously my sons are far more independent you know and I I can do what I call electronic parenting where I speak to them on the phone in the way that when they were three or four what they needed was a hug and to sit on my lap whereas they now can have the verbal equivalent of that so I I have far more time to myself. I have more freedom over my hours. You know, I don't have to play tag with my husband so that there's always someone at home. And and yet, you know, your children, even adult children, always need you. And I'm always make myself available to them. You know, I'm always available at the end of a phone. And, you know, my two older sons are at university, but they're home at least half of the year. And there is a great pleasure in seeing them become adults. And we have three adult children living at home with us now. And that brings its own challenges. You know, they're all independent, strong-minded. And instead of saying, this is how we run the house because we're the parents, there's a 
there's quite a lot of negotiation going on. But it is a great pleasure to sit around the supper table with them all and just listen and the banter and the fun. It's great. Mm. And you mentioned to me when we prepared for this call that you you will stop a meeting to take a call from your youngest son. Can you tell us a bit more about what that looks like in practice? Does he call you every day or yeah, what, what, what is that like? So my youngest son is 17 and a half now. And I would say up until about six months ago, if he came home to an empty house because I was at work, he would always like to call me and let me know that he'd come home and he'd like to sort of just offload a little bit about his day and find out when I was coming home. And I considered that a top priority to be there because I wasn't at home to say hello to him, that I wanted to be available. And in internal meetings, people would know that if the phone rang and my it was my son, that I would stop, you know, even if just for 10 or 20 seconds to say, how are you? Are you okay? I'm in a meeting now. I'll call you back. And I took that decision, you know, when I was relatively senior. So I had that sort of power to be able to do that. But I explained to people, I will do this. And I think actually I felt like I was role modeling a balance. You know, I didn't talk to him for five minutes when there was a meeting in place. I would just say, is everything okay? I'm in a meeting. I'll call you back. But that contact for my son was really important. And I think with both work and home life, it's about understanding what's important. And that's what you make time for. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Can you remember when you first started this, were you in a quite traditional setup as I the workplace was it quite a, a workplace that was already very modern or was it a workplace where you were surrounded by people who worked the usual nine to five were you the first person to make such brave things I pick up the call in, in the middle of an important meeting with judges for example I think I started it in my previous job and I would describe it as mostly a modern organization probably the four directors and chief exec we four of us were parents three were fathers uh, I was a mum and we took each other's family seriously and so to that extent I think it it was a modern and forward-looking organization that valued colleagues' home lives. I think it was less forward-looking in terms of work pattern, but then the pandemic threw all of that up and changed things. Mm-hmm. We talked about the, the pace of careers, and you mentioned that you, in your own words, you, you slowed down your career for a while. What exactly did that look like? Did you go part-time or what role? did you have and what did you learn from slowing down your career as you put it? Well I had my first son you know nearly 24 years ago and at the time I was working in the civil service as a government lawyer and I think the civil service was generally ahead of its time compared to maybe the private sector and some other organizations in that you could work part-time there and you could have a healthy work-home balance. After my first son was born, I went back to work part-time. And after my second son was born, I again went back part-time, but I could see that it would, it was still an environment where it was 
difficult it would have been difficult for me to be promoted because there was less understanding of what it was possible to do if you worked part time and it was felt that certain jobs or certain responsibilities were a bit off limits if you worked part time and if you didn't if you didn't show experience of those type of roles then you couldn't be promoted so it was a sort of indirect discrimination i think and i when i thought about you know what was important to me it felt very important to to have time with my children and i wanted to be home in time for tea bath and bedtime and i when i reflect on it i don't know i don't know if it would have been possible to push harder with my career but i decided that instead of trying to progress vertically up in my career i would take time to to be with my children continue to work and the sort of compromise or the or the way i sort of squared it for myself was i would only do interesting jobs so i might not be progressing vertically but i would enjoy and love the job that i was doing and at the same time i found myself and i hadn't thought this through but i found myself participating in community volunteering that was purposeful and really rewarding to me and in fact in hindsight gave me all the skills that were equal to what i would have gained at work and i i learned two things from that that there's more than one way to gain the experience and skills you need to progress and it's okay to define success for yourself and for a while i didn't define it as progressing vertically up the career ladder Mm-hmm. And in a way, that's very reassuring because so often people are told, right, so here there are two types of people. Either you're super career oriented, which means you're going to work full time for your whole life and you're going to have five nannies to look after the children or you take a backseat and you don't progress and you stay part time forever. But you said, well, actually, there was a phase where you did interesting things and you were had the confidence to be where you are and not move ahead but at the same time you're still the chief executive of the UK Supreme Court now and i just think that's such a powerful message that you do not have to go even you know even if you are ambitious you do not have to go straight up for this particular role i i really think that's right i won't claim that i knew that 20 years ago i didn't but looking back i would i would definitely offer that reassurance to people you can and i think the other thing i would always say that working part time hours does not mean that you're partly committed to your career you can work part time and be fully committed to the work that you do and i've always taken that attitude is that when i'm at work i give it everything and you know and i try and do the same when i'm at home so i generally think the work environment is recognizes that more and values alternative experience you know i i was a lawyer for nearly 20 years and came to you know a difficult point where i realized that i didn't really want to be a lawyer anymore but it felt like a huge thing to leave a profession where i built up that experience and reputation i'm sure you you have yeah. you know, everyone knows vicky is really good at this law thing and then you're doing something different and you start with your credibility again <laughs> well certainly my legal colleagues when i left i could see they thought i was having a midlife crisis you could kind of see that that kindly look in their eyes like i don't know what she's going through but she's going through something but i suppose my point here was that when i started that second career becoming chief exec was my third role 
So I, I progressed very quickly and I progressed very quickly because I was quite focused on doing that, but also because of all the voluntary work and non-legal work I'd done when I was slowing down my legal career actually stood me in really great stead. You know, I could demonstrate that I know how to chair a committee and meetings. I know how to progress work and plan it. So don't ever devalue voluntary work or anything else you do outside of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. I, I so agree. I used to be chair of trustees at Citizens Advice in Lewisham and I've learned so much and it was such a blessing to have that. And, and the ability, I think the other thing is you get the, the sense of purpose that you are making a difference in a very meaningful way. Um, let me just dig a bit deeper into that part-time work because quite a few of our fellows this month have had conversations with me about part-time you know, they're, they're the first people maybe re- requesting flexible work or part-time work in at their level in their organization. And I think if I remember right, right, you were the first in your organization at your level to work part-time. What was it like to be the first and how did you, how do you get the permission of people to, to do it? I think it can be quite scary to ask for something, knowing that you're the first person to ask. But then I also thought it might be a bit scary for the organisation because they're taking a risk. So I tried to think what would they need to know to be reassured that this could work. And I, when I had those first conversations in my last job, I was the first director not to work full time. And I, what I tried to do in conversations was show how the work could be done and how on the days that I wasn't there, you know, if something urgent came up or something happened, how how that would work. Because the organization's perspective was, if what needs to be done, it needs to be done, tell me how. And, and so the onus was on me to make it work. And I think one of the really interesting shifts following the pandemic is the onus has shifted to the employer with flexible and hybrid working. And you see lots of organizations thinking about this very deeply and worrying about it. And I kind of think you've got all these organizations, they have got loads of people in their organization that have been doing this for years and have been taking responsibility for making it work. Go and ask them because they know. So I think it's about being very clear about what you can and can't do and for reassuring the organization how it will work for them and and a bit of persistence. And I, you know, I know with one working pattern, I said, why don't we trial it? Why don't we see how it works? I I know I can make this work. I can see you're still worried about it. Why don't we review it in three months? Mm, mm, Absolutely. At the moment, you work uh, compressed hours. Is that right? Yes. I work five days over four and a half. Mm -hmm. And I've kept that half day free because of responsibilities that I have at home. You know, as I've said, my children are older, but they still need me. I have older parents now who are still independent, but I like to be available. And, you know, I have, I still have voluntary work commitments. And for me, that half day provides the sanity that I need to combine the job that I do with the home life that I have. Mm. And I imagine it gives you also that breathing space that is so important to come up with new ideas, to, well, the, the, the rest uh, that you need to be. At your very best. 
Absolutely. And I know, you know, particularly for people like you, Verena, with very young children, finding headspace is almost impossible. And I, you know, I well remember that time. And in fact, even though I have more time, I sometimes it is a bit of self-discipline to stop and reflect. And I I've got into a bit of a habit at the beginning of the week of writing down, you know, what would make this a good week? You know, what would be the three things that I would need to achieve to make it feel like a good week? And on Friday afternoon thinking, did that happen? Mm. Or what derailed it if it didn't happen? Or did something better happen instead? And I think creating time to reflect is 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 something about self-discipline. And and yet, I think to be a successful leader, you must reflect. Reflecting is one of the most important things you do as a leader. Mm-hmm. One of our mentors has said, the more senior you get, the more you get paid to think rather than do. And mm. that, it might actually mm. have been you. Was it you? I don't know. It might have been. <laughs> it might have been. But if someone else said it, they were right. They were right. <laughs> yeah, interesting. I want to come back to the CEO issue because I am always still flabbergasted that there are so... There's a bit of progress with diversity and senior leadership, not enough. But still, when you look at the top job, it is still too often a white middle class male, many of whom are doing a fantastic job. But we need more people who have varied life experiences, um, including parents and mothers to be represented. So I'm just interested. Did you always want to be a CEO? Was that part of your game plan? Did you have a game plan? I didn't have a game plan. And I know some people do. I didn't. I think I always knew that I wanted to be in the room where decisions were being made. And I didn't know what that room would be. But I knew that I always wanted that. I wanted to be at the center of what was going on and not be peripheral. And and I think I've always been fairly ambitious in quite a personal way. You know, I like I like to see how I'm progressing. I like to feel that I'm progressing and and not treading water. So I had no idea that I would end up as CEO of the Supreme Court, none at all. And I'm not sure that I could have planned a route to it. And I still wake up in the morning with a sort of happy smile on my face, like, oh, my God, I've got my dream job. And I feel really grateful that I've got it. And I, although it wasn't planned, I think that I've worked hard and certainly you know, my second career, I have thought quite carefully about what skills and experience would I need to progress without necessarily knowing in what role that would be. But I have, I've become much more aware of that. Mm. If you don't mind, I would be very interested in, no, not to necessarily head on for your replacement, but I'm just interested in what type of skills and experiences do you need for a CEO type role? Is, is there something that stands out? That's a good question. I think well, we've talked about that reflective ability and and I think what's connected to that is the ability to step back and see the big picture. And for me, one of the first things I did when I became CEO was worked with staff to set a vision because I think without the big picture and without a CEO or other senior staff driving the organisation forward towards that vision, I think that to me feels pretty central to the role of a CEO. So it's driving the organization relentlessly sort of following your vision. And if people say to me, oh, this would be a really interesting piece of work to do, my question is always, how does it contribute to the vision? So I think that 
seeing the big picture and keeping focused on it at all times. And then another part of my role I see is clearing the path. So I've many people in the organization that know how to do things far better than me. They're experts in communication or in finance or in HR. And I and I ask them, what do you need me to do so that you can do your job in the best way possible? So I'll, you know, if there's if there are things blocking progress, I see my role as sort of clearing that way for them. And I think so you've got to have clarity of thought. You've got to have done a number of jobs where you've really learned about what are your strengths and weaknesses. So you're aware of what sort of team you need around you. And for me, I think I bring to an organization, I'm a very good planner and I'm a good strategic thinker. And I ask the right questions of people to help them identify the best way to do things. Other chief execs will have different strengths. They'll be very creative or they'll be very good at setting up organizations from the start. I'm very much a people person and enabling people to to kind of bring their best self to work and and for us to coalesce behind a vision as a team. You know, and that's my other mantra. We cross the finishing line together. So this is not a scramble. This is a team effort. Mm. Mm. It is very interesting. And it almost seems to be that there's a theme of simplicity coming through. Not to say that you are looking at your work in a simplistic way at all, but actually you are, I guess, creating clarity. And yeah, in a way, it is the simplicity of this is what we're here to do and removing those barriers as well. I think it's very interesting. And funnily enough that you haven't mentioned finance, legal, any of that, but you have made the switch from a specialist legal person to a more generalist. Is it, was that an easy thing to do? How, how did you do it? I did it because I. When I was a lawyer, and I had a very enjoyable career as a government lawyer, I didn't I didn't leave because I wasn't enjoying it, but I wanted to do more. And when I was in meetings with policy colleagues and other civil servants, I started I found myself thinking, well, I would do it differently to that, and I would like to this, and I could that. And I just started to realize that I was no longer hungry to be promoted within the legal profession. And I kept asking myself, why? Why aren't I going for promotion? And I realized in the end, because it wasn't going to give me what I wanted. And I did agonize for many months about making the switch. And I did I did literally have a three o'clock in the morning moment where I woke up and thought, I can't keep being a lawyer for the next 20 years because I have been a lawyer for the last 20 years. And that morning, I updated my CV and started looking for jobs. And I didn't know if I would have enough transferable skills. But I just thought, I won't know until I try. Mm. And when I did get my first job, non-legal job, it was in the Electoral Commission. And I realized that I had a huge number of transferable skills. And those that I didn't have, I I was able to learn. In the same way I learned to be a lawyer, I learned to be a not lawyer. <laughs> and what was really invaluable to me in that first job was I had a real crisis of confidence because I was so far out of my comfort zone. You know, I'd left a job that I'd been in for 16 years where everyone knew me and I knew them. I'd left my legal experience behind me and I was in a new organization where I needed to prove myself in an entirely new area. 
And the organization gave me a coach for six months. Mm. And that was fantastic for me. That was the support that I needed whilst I sort of enlarged my comfort zone. And I found that enormously helpful. Mm. Interesting. And was this the same approach that you used to be confident enough to apply to a job like being a CEO? I don't know many people who are confident enough and think they meet all the, the elements of a job description of a CEO. Well, it's funny because I saw the job advert for the CEO and I thought, oh, wow, that looks amazing. That looks really fun. And then I thought, but it's not for me. And then a day or two later, I had another look at it and thought, oh, that would be so cool. What an amazing job. But I can't do it. And I went, you know, ridiculously back and forth like this for a while. And then I just thought, well, actually, it's not for me to decide whether I'm the right person for this job. That is what the interview panel does. And so I decided to apply. And I, I won't say it was easy because I did really doubt my abilities and I did really sort of lack self-confidence about it. You know, that classic imposter syndrome. But I'm, I think it's so familiar to me and it's probably so familiar to other people that I've learned to sort of live with it and do things as well as feeling like an imposter. And I, you know, I've got a good network of friends around me and I got, you know, somebody to look at my application form and sort of have a look at it. And then when I heard that I got the interview, which I couldn't believe, I, you know, I got some friends to do interview practice for me. So I, as at the same time as doubting my ability, I did everything I possibly could to put myself in the right position. And I got through various stages of the interviews. And the final interview, I thought I'd done terribly. I was distraught at the end of the interview. Honestly, I was sort of in tears and I felt sick. And my husband took me for a walk around the block. And I was just, I just thought, I can't believe I threw that away. And I th said to my husband, right, I'm going to let myself feel sorry for myself for two days. And then I'm going to pick myself up, recommit to my current job and just learn from the experience. And as I picked myself up and thought, yes, I'm very happy where I am. Of course, I got the call to say, we'd like to offer you the job. And I, I was laughing and I was crying. <laughs> I mean, I just could, could not believe that I'd got it, could not believe I got it. So I kind of hope that anyone listening takes reassurance from that that you can do these things and have self-doubt at the same time it's kind of fine and I think what experience has taught me is you 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 have these two things living alongside each other mm. Mm. so you're saying just just acknowledge that you do have that self-doubt and it's just part of your experience but just yeah. do it anyways mm. yeah interesting that's such a powerful experience thank you for sharing that so actually, you're saying we don't have to have confidence. Don't worry about it. Just get on with life regardless. I think you do have to have it. And I definitely am more confident now than I was. And that's because, you know, I've I've learned things. But I think it's OK to progress. What well, it, It's a it's always a work in progress. Mm. And I think as a leader, you have to you have to appear confident most of the time. People have to trust you um, and trust that you'll you've got their back and that you can make things happen successfully and you know and I am confident to an extent but I've got my kind of 
my weaknesses or my areas where I'm less sure of myself. And I'm sometimes quite honest about that with people because I think it is an important message that you can sometimes not be sure of yourself and still still get on and succeed. And, you know, in moments like that, I say to myself, just one step, just one step, you know, one step at a time. You don't have to save the world. Just finish this piece of work and then we'll review, you know. And I, so I think it's a combination. Mm. And I think in your story, also the power of having that network of people who were rallying you on, who were practicing with you, who, who looked at you. And that's exactly what we need. When I set up the fellowship, which obviously is a social enterprise, I was, you know, a lot of people told me, keep the groups right, quite large because financially, obviously, it's more beneficial. But I did decide to just keep it to a maximum of 14 people per group because I do think that is how you create these really intense, not intense in a negative way, but really close relationships with people who then become your allies, your champions, and who will pick you up. So, And you can obviously get that in other ways as well through other friends. But I think that is so important to have a group of people who rally you along. I completely agree. And Rena, what what made you what gave you the confidence to do that? Because you're really a trailblazer. How did how did you do that? I would actually say the exact same thing. So I definitely didn't have the confidence. But in a way, I think it was the curiosity. I like mm-hmm. I just I think the confidence I guess the curiosity and desire to do something that was meaningful and that I believed in was in the end stronger mm-hmm. than the fear. And you know, I I I really did have fear at the beginning. I was wondering, is this, is anyone going to think this is a good idea? Because of course, lots of people at the time said, well, no, it's never going to work. Parents don't want to focus on career progression. But somehow, yeah, I, I think I just ended up doing it anyways. And then the other thing that was helpful was just to have some external pressure. So I applied for this funding thinking I wouldn't get it. Very small funding was £2,000 from the Royal Society for the Arts and Commerce. And I got it and then I had to deliver it. And that's how the pilot of the fellowship program was born. <laughs> so yeah, It's so amazing. Mm-hmm. So curiosity and confidence in terms of a financial grant is what created this amazing organization. Yeah, probably. It wasn't, you know, the, obviously the financial grant wasn't near enough to actually run it, but just the no. external pressure of having having done a funding application and saying, writing down, I'm going to do it by March meant I have, once I got the money, I had to actually follow through on it. Yeah. And so the public commitment in that sense, was quite powerful. Yeah. So are you a people pleaser or not? I think my natural tendency is yes. And I think, yes, I think I am. But I've learned how to, I've learned how to balance that at work so that I, you know, I I can say no and I can set boundaries around, you know, what's okay and what's not okay. But I, you know, that I'm aware sometimes that I find that that's sometimes uncomfortable because I like to please people and say, yes, I can do everything. But I've also learned in the long run that doesn't work. Mm. And how do you, so practically, knowing that you have people pleasing tendencies, how do you say no or have boundaries? Are they, two or three practical things that you can share with the listeners? I think 
I mean, I'm I'm quite a fan of lists. And if I write down everything that I need to do, I can quickly see what's possible and what's not. And I don't like over-promising and saying to somebody yes and then letting them down. And I think for me, that was quite a useful way of thinking about it, of how to say no, to say, look, I, I would love to help you, but I know I just wouldn't be able to get it done. And rather than disappoint you further down the line, let me just... Let me just help you by saying no now. So I think it's knowing what you can and can't do, you know, what's sensible and to say yes to and and to say no to. So I think knowing what your capacity is, is probably the first practical tip. And then finding ways that are authentic to you to say no. So to say no in a way that reflects who you are. So, you know, the example I gave is kind of, is an, is an authentic way for me to say no, which is, I'd love to help you. I just can't on this occasion. And I think, you know, just being unequivocal about that so that people who are hearing you know where they stand with you is really important as well. You know, and I've, I've got more and more comfortable with it. And I say, actually, this isn't the sort of thing I do. So thanks for thinking of me, but it's not for me. And I think it's just the other practical tip, I guess, then is practicing how would you say no because I think often what stops people saying no is they don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, And again, that's something you can practice with a friend. Mm, it's very true. It's very true. And I think also the instinct to answer there and then. And, and if you are unexpectedly, you're being told of something and you, your instinct is to say yes, actually controlling that instinct by having practiced the answer already is a very good tip. Definitely. Or, you know, just creating that pause. That's a really interesting ask. Let me think about it. Mm. Mm, you know, just give yourself a little bit of time to think about it. Mm. I like that suggestion. Mental load is another topic I wanted to ask you about. Now, you've had three children, or you still have them, obviously. <laughs> and I presume there was a massive to-do list in the house and with getting three Christmas play, outfits ready and all that. How did you or do you manage the mental load with your partner or husband? Well, I think we learned the hard way because I think I kind of assumed the entire mental load at the beginning until it sort of became too much for me to bear and and then it sort of made me really exhausted and angry. And it's that always having to remember and the trouble with always having to remember and to get everybody in the right place at the right time with the right kit, it's invisible work. And yet it's really time consuming and it's really exhausting. For me, the trick was how do you make that visible? And the way my husband and I did it after the sort of after we realized bickering about it didn't work very well um, was on Sunday evening, we used to put the children to bed quite early and then we'd have what we called a household management meeting and we'd sit down each with a notebook and go through what needed to happen that week and then we divided divide it up and we divided it up depending on what sort of week we were both going to have you know if one of us had a big meeting then the other might take up a bit more of the load and vice versa and I think it was that explicit sharing of the responsibility and planning really was transformational for me and I do that now with the children well I call them children my adult children who still have a tendency to say to me what's what's happening or where's where's this or 
what's that? And and I sort of try to start making that more explicit with them as well, so that it's you know we have we have a shared responsibility for how they how they you know get their act together in their life. Mm. Interesting that you have a structured conversation and set time of, aside for this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, which in a way is counterintuitive because you always assume that people who've got their lives together it just comes natural but actually you're saying it is work to have that equality it is work to create you know to organize that mental load in a way that it doesn't impact on you negatively yeah that's very interesting that's what worked for us you know and every you know different people will find different ways of working for us it was about being really explicit about what needed to be done and then dividing it up kindly and generously between Mm. ourselves Definitely. And I think also, you know, when the kids were young and I was juggling a lot, I also learned to accept that sometimes you drop the balls. You can't keep all the balls in the air all the time. And, you know, I used to think, well, are the children, have they been fed? And are they, you know, have they got a smile on their face at some point during the day? And and that was my sort of benchmark, you know, and I it was stopping trying to be perfect all the time and being a bit more forgiving of a little bit of chaos or a little bit of well I didn't quite manage to do that and just saying to somebody look I'm really sorry I just didn't get to that or Mm. yes I'm really sorry they turned up in the wrong outfit for the wrong concert (laughs) that's you know that is what happens sometimes and actually it's fine you know Mm. the kids survived the school survived I survived it was Mm. okay and it probably made them more resilient by being the only one in red where everyone else was black. And look, it, it yeah. has a black hole. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you're an employer of parents and it's been a tough, tough two years for parents at the moment. What did you say to your parents at work during the pandemic when there was homeschooling going on, when children had to be off school because they caught COVID and so on? Well, the first thing that I said to the parents at the court is please don't ever feel that you have to pretend that you can homeschool and work at the same time because you can't, you just can't. And I, you know, I have so much admiration for parents of primary school children, particularly during the pandemic. I think it was so demanding and so challenging. And Mm -hmm. I just wanted to remove as much pressure from them as possible and remove any pretense that they had to carry on as normal because we were in extraordinary circumstances. You know, I think back particularly to last January, where almost on a day's notice, the schools closed. And, you know, we said if people need to take a couple of days to work out, just work out what could work for Mm. them, that was fine. And I left, you know, I trusted parents and their line managers to come to arrangements that suited them. Mm. to do what worked for them so that might have meant working reduced hours or working at odd hours of the day because they're playing tag parenting with a partner and I was content in the midst the midst of the height of the pandemic to slow our work down Mm. you know we had to get the essential work done but some of the other work could slow down because what I didn't want to do was to run people into the ground. A pandemic is a stressful situation. Mm. And I was perfectly happy to stand up on behalf of the court and say we didn't get this or that work done because of, you know, because we couldn't, you know, provided we got the essential work done, Mm. the bottom line stuff done. I, you know, we have people turning up to work, not robots. Mm. Mm. 
Absolutely. And we set up a support group for parents as well that met, you know, every few weeks where they could each talk about what was going on for them and, you know, share tips and advice. Mm, fantastic. Um, and we're coming towards the end of our time, although I could keep asking you lots of questions. To finish, can you share three practical things that might be helpful to someone who hears this and is working part time? So anything practical I could do this week to make their life good, I guess. Well, I was I was thinking about this right now, and I these are my tips. I think when you think about your hours, I think think about impact rather than hours that you work. So think about what can I do that will make add the most value or make the most difference. So think about your impact rather than oh I'm only working X number of hours a week, and invest some of that time in people and relationships at work. I think. It's really, it's very easy to let that go when you work part-time, but actually that's the really valuable investment of time if you want to get noticed and if you want to get promoted or you want to get involved in a new project, you need to have relationships with people. And I would say seek out work that challenges you intellectually and provides satisfaction because that's where you'll be stretching yourself and learning new skills. And seek leadership opportunities where you might not expect to find them and that can be one moment in a meeting where you can make an impact where you can see a meeting going in the wrong direction or falling apart a bit there's a leadership opportunity then and there Mm. or it could be as we were talking about earlier volunteer work and I think my final thing is make sure you have a good network of support around you Mm. Mm. Those are excellent tips and I'm sure will be extremely welcome um, to the listeners who are working part-time. A big thank you, Vicky. I really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for listening today. I've really appreciated you listening all the way to the end. So hopefully that means you found it useful. As I mentioned in the beginning, applications are closing on 1st of March, but we haven't made any decisions yet about hardship front spaces. So if you need one of those, you've got plenty of time to get your application in. There's only one intake this year though, so if you do want to join then please apply now. It is for you if you have young children and if you want to progress your career. If that applies to you, then you should definitely consider applying. We're looking for people who are really keen not just to progress your own career but also to support others and be part of a transformational really supportive community of peers who want to be the change for others really and and not just drive change for their own career but for the wider society on a practical level over the course of this nine month fellowship you will work with a senior leader mentor who has experience of bringing up children whilst progressing their career You'll get support to develop your vision and plan for your career and family life in small group sessions. You get access to the latest research on what causes career progression and how to implement this practically in the context of looking after young children. You get sessions to support with really practical things like workload management, as well as workshops with your partner and your line manager, if you happen to have one, obviously not everyone does, and access to inspirational role models. This is a really transformational program I think so to consider applying if it's up your street what many people don't know is that we have also got a group for children for parents of children with primary school age so definitely don't just apply if you have toddlers or preschoolers or babies 
and also for the very first time we have a truly international group so if you're listening to this outside of the uk europe africa the east coast of the us or southeast asia then we will have a, a session that fits with your time zone and as i mentioned there are some hard ship fund spaces available for those in financially challenging circumstances because as a social enterprise we're really about supporting people to progress their career regardless of their background and if you found the podcast helpful you could do something to help me out because i've got a couple of dream guests for example bernie brown but they will need even more listeners i really loved seeing the listener numbers grow and thank you so much to all of you who've shared the podcast but if you could share just with one more person that you think would benefit from hearing this then i would absolutely love that so maybe share it via whatsapp signal telegram whatever you're using or just in the good old-fashioned way um, when you next meet your friend until next time have a wonderful week